New Testament in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and in at least one version of the Black Books, the page is 1147. Page 1147. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. And uh, the editor of the Bible on this occasion has uh, headed this section, The Supremacy of Christ. The Supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Praise the Lord. So if I can get some Britney Spears going a bit later, but... Um... <laughs> well, uh, thank you to the Committee of Management and those who's helped us fix the, the lapel mic. Now the... Uh, kids talker doesn't have to scream and the preacher doesn't have to whisper and uh, we should be right with this so we'll give it a go. Well thanks for praying too Dan, we'll get straight into our message and I've got some slides there if you can get that first one up. When I was about uh, nine years old or ten or something like that, my godfather actually brought me, purchased me uh, a cricket bat. Uh, but it was an amazing cricket bat because he bought it at an auction and it had been signed by the whole New South Wales cricket team. And at the time there were some big names playing for the Blues. Um, Steve War, Mark War, Mark Taylor. Um, the, you, know, you probably won't recognise some of the others, but those were some of the big names I had signed on my bat. And I think I've still got it somewhere to hit an intruder with, but... Um, I don't know where it is at the moment. Um, so it was an amazing present. It would have cost him a lot of money at the auction. I don't know how much it cost him. But, see, I didn't fully appreciate how special that gift really was. I, as a young kid, uh, I was a naughty little boy, and I didn't value it enough. If you can get the next picture up. My buddy had a mulberry tree um, in his backyard, and we were both cricket tragics and uh, we decided not to use a tennis ball one day but to use my 
autographed New South Wales bat. And uh, they say when you hit a cricket bat, it gets cherries on it. Well, mine got mulberries on it. And um, it was very red by the end of that game. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, as we just saw, it talks about how special the Lord Jesus really is. But I wonder if we can be sometimes a bit like that nine-year-old Jesse with his cricket bat. Just like I didn't value the cricket bat enough, can we not value King Jesus enough in our lives? Uh, Maybe you come to church and you get pretty bored most of the time. Or maybe you try and read the Bible, but it's not that interesting to you. Or, or maybe your prayer life is flat. Friends, we need to bring ourselves back to the glory of the Lord Jesus today, which we see in these verses of Colossians. So our big question for this morning, for our talk, is what is so special about Jesus Christ? That's the question that our passage is asking. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 to 20. So just to do a bit of a recap for you about Colossians. Um, So Paul had never been to this church before. He did not plant the church. He hadn't met them before. He hadn't been to visit them. Okay, Where was Colossians? If we can get that one up. That's Turkey, that big blob of land there. And just on the right, down the bottom is is, uh, Israel and uh, Syria. But that's Turkey. So back in those days it was called Asia Minor, uh, but it's modern-day Turkey. Uh, Colossae was um, just a bit up from the, the coast there. It was maybe about 50 or 100k from Ephesus, which was closer to the coast. And there were a bunch of other biblical cities nearby Colossae, like uh, one called Laodicea and Hierapolis, um, which are mentioned in some of the other Bible books. But it was in Turkey. Um, at one time it was a very busy city because it was between a few crossroads. So they had a lot of trade going in, and a lot of different cultures going in, a lot of different religions going in, in that sense, as well, to the city. Uh, if we can get the next slide up, it was in a place called the Lycus Valley. Okay, So that's the valley that a few of these cities were in. Um, and uh, that's where Colossae was. When was it written? Well, it was written when Paul was in prison in Rome. If you remember from the end of the book of Acts, Paul is trying to get to see Caesar to uh, state his case, and he's put into house arrest in Rome. And from house arrest in Rome, he, we think he wrote quite a number of his epistles, and Colossians was one of them. So he was in chains in Rome, waiting to see Caesar. And a fellow called Epaphras, who was the church planter in Colossae, a guy called Epaphras planted this church. He was a mate of Paul's, and he went and saw Paul when Paul was in prison in Rome. And he told Paul about about some problems, some dodgy stuff that was going on in this church in Colossae. And so that's the background to this letter. Paul has received information that there's problems in this church of Colossae. And as the great apostle, he's writing to them to uh, give them God's thoughts on the matter. Okay, so how are we going to structure our message today in Colossians 1, 15 to 20? Well, 
As we saw in the kids' talk, I think it shows us some amazing truths about the awesomeness of Jesus. We're going to go one by one of those little things we saw there and look at nine amazing truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, looking at the different facets of his glory nine times, just like we might turn a a diamond and look at the beauty of the different diamond faces we're going to explore the beauty of Jesus this morning from this passage. Who is Jesus to you? Just a historical figure? Just a boring dude who wore a toga? A fellow who you hear about in church sometimes? Friends, we're going to hear about the awesomeness of King Jesus today and how that should impact our life. Okay, so nine amazing truths in our passage. And the first one you see in verse 15 there, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Isn't that amazing? If we can get the next slide up, please. Um, In the Old Testament, Moses went to Mount Sinai, and he went up Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. And uh, we, we understand the principle that no one can see God and live. That Moses learns that principle in Exodus chapter 33. I'll just read out a bit of it for you. Moses wanted God to show him his glory. He'd, he'd, he'd seen some of his glory in, in the lightning and the thunder that was happening on Mount Sinai. Uh, but then Moses said to him, God, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name in your presence. But, God said, but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. We'd be vaporised if we saw God and lived. If we saw God, he's too holy. He's too perfect. We're too sinful. We'd be destroyed if we saw him in his glory. And then God says to Moses, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Well, friends, isn't it amazing then that it says here in Colossians that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. God is revealing himself to mankind. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We can't see God. But Jesus is his image. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Jesus reveals God to us, or God reveals himself to us in Jesus. People in this world want to know where God is, why he hasn't showed up if he exists, why he's not making all things right if he exists. Friends, he does exist and he came into the world as the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so as we look at what the Lord Jesus did in the scriptures, as we see Jesus walking the dust of Palestine, that's God coming to earth. As we see Jesus speaking things and doing things and having attitudes, they're God's attitudes. 
He was God in the flesh. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so, friends, the application, I think, to us this morning, just briefly from that, is is that we must be reading God's word, the Bible. For if Jesus is the image of God, if Jesus is bringing God's to us, then, then how do we access information about Jesus? Where does God speak about Jesus in the scripture, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in in the, the explanation of the Gospels in the letters, and in the Old Testament as Christ is revealed in shadow and promise? If we want to see God revealed, if we want to see his image of the invisible one, if we want to connect with God, we must be reading God's word and seeing the Lord Jesus revealed in the Word. So, friends, I encourage you to make Bible reading central in your life. Find a way to do it. You might be a morning person or an evening person, whatever. Find a way that suits you. You might be someone who reads the text. You might need a devotional commentary. Whatever it is, find a way to make the Bible central in your life. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, secondly, the second amazing truth, if we can get it up there, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, Jackson Huckle is my firstborn son. Okay? This says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. So does that mean that Jesus was created by God? No! No! No, that would be against what we believe, wouldn't it? That would be against our confession of faith because we believe that Jesus is God. He is God the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity of God. So he wasn't created by God. So what does it mean then that he's the firstborn over all creations? Don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses destroy this verse and destroy the Bible and destroy your God by saying that Jesus was created. That's not what this verse means, and that's what they'll tell you. Don't listen to them. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn over creation? Well, if you get the next picture up, in the ancient world, I'm not really sure what that picture is, but I hope it's kosher. Um, In the ancient world, the firstborn was to have prominence. The firstborn son was the supreme one, the one who would inherit everything. He was number one. So when it's saying Jesus is the firstborn over creation, it's saying he is the great one, he is the supreme one, he is number one. Is that how we see Jesus? The greatest being ever to have existed. And what does that mean for how you treat him and how you live your life. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the great one. He's supreme. Third uh, amazing truth we see in the passage is all things were created, verse 16, all things were created by him and for him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. What an amazing truth to learn about Jesus. The man who walked 
the, uh, the meadowy fields of Galilee was God, was the one who created all things. Can you see it there in verse 16? Jesus created everything. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, he says to the Jews listening to him, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. He created all things, things in heaven, angels, demons, the devil himself. He created all things on earth, humans and all of creation. They've been created by him and they've also been created for him. We've been created for him as well, for Jesus. You've been created for Jesus. You've been created for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's your purpose. To bring glory to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah says, in God's name, he says, God says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made, he created you for Christ's glory. You've been created by him and for him. How does your life reflect that? If you've been created for Jesus and for Jesus' glory, does your life reflect that? Or are you living in disobedience to God's commands? Does your life bring glory to Jesus Christ? Praise God, I know that many of of our lives do. Okay, let's go back to the list. Number four, it says in verse 17 that he is before all things. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? He is before all things. He was the first cause, Jesus. Of course he was if he's the creator. Number five, it says in verse 17, in him all things hold together. Okay, can we get the next picture up, please? On, uh, on Tuesday, Mel's mum made us a meatloaf, and it was delicious, Worcestershire sauce and whatever else she put in there. And I said to her as we were chomping that meatloaf and enjoying it, I said, Mum, what holds this meatloaf together? And she said, well, Jesse, I put an egg in it, and then I put some rolled oats in it. Because if I didn't do that, it, the meat would fall apart. Well, friends, just like a meatloaf is held together by egg and rolled oats, I feel a little bit um, blasphemous saying this uh, analogy, but um, the universe is held together by Jesus. Jesus holds it all together. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the God of providence in our lives. Jesus, the man is the one who sits at God's right hand now and in, God's given him authority to hold us together, to hold the earth on its axis. You know, if the earth would move from its axis a little bit, we'd probably go into the ice age. Jesus holds it together. He holds everything together by his breath of providence, by his word of grace in our lives. It's a good uh, 
incentive to be thankful to Jesus, isn't it? I know I probably don't give him thanks enough in my life. He's holding us together right now. Verse 17. In him all things hold together. Uh, Next we see in the passage the sixth amazing truth. He is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, it says, his body. Uh, Just the other week, Leon and I were in Sydney for the assembly meeting of the Prezies and and our friend from Leeton, Richard Keith, was installed as the moderator for this year. So he chairs the meeting and then he's like the figurehead of the state church for the year. And as much as I love Richard and as much as he's helped me, He's not really the head of the church, is he? And you know, neither is the Pope. And neither is the session or the com or me. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of Griffith Baptist Church and Life Source Church and Griffith Presbyterian. He's the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. The only one with ultimate authority in the church is Jesus. You know, the church is going to let you down. The church is going to tick you off sometimes. But Jesus doesn't let you down. And he's the one we're serving. So let's keep our eyes on him, the head of our church. Uh, next, next amazing truth is uh, the seventh one. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, we see in verse 18. This is referring, these two things, beginning and firstborn from among the dead, this is referring to the resurrection of Jesus. That he was the first one to burst into the new life of the resurrection. When he rose from the dead, he he didn't just get resuscitated, he got resurrected. He went into the new life of God, which we'll experience forever. And he was the beginning of that. He was the beginning of heaven, the firstborn from among the dead into God's new life. And when he's the firstborn from among the dead, it means we will follow him as well. We will experience that new life with him. But he was the first and he brought it in, in this world, that new life of God that awaits us. He was the beginning. Number eight, we see all God's fullness dwells in him. All God's fullness dwells in Jesus. And that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Which we've really touched on a bit already. But all the fullness of God dwells in him. And Paul wanted to say this and phrase it this way because he's going to talk a lot about fullness in the book of Colossians. Because the false teachers that were coming into the church at Colossae, they were saying... In Christ, you haven't got fullness in the faith. In, in, in Christ and the cross, you have not got it all. You need more fullness. And this is how you can have it. And they gave them a few other dodgy ways to pursue their faith. But friends, this is saying Jesus does have the fullness that we need. And he is all that we need. So when there's a message that seems to add things to the gospel. We shouldn't listen to it because we have fullness already 
in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Number nine, we see in verse 20, through Christ God has reconciled to himself all things. Let's read verse 20. Through Christ to reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God has reconciled us. To be reconciled, we once needed to be at enmity with him. And in our sin we were. We stood under his judgment. The relationship was broken, but at the cross we've been reconciled. And he brings us peace. We see there to reconcile to himself all things. There's nothing that you have done which cannot be reconciled by the cross. When you place your faith in Jesus and place your faith in the cross, you are reconciled to God. You are made right with him. The wonderful truth of the Christian faith. But isn't it interesting that it says to reconcile to himself all things. So does that mean everyone on earth is going to be saved? It says there to reconcile to himself all things. So does that mean people who are not repentant and who who hate the Lord Jesus Christ, does that mean they'll they'll be saved, they're reconciled? Well, no. Because the scripture says that we, we must have a personal response of repentance and faith to Jesus. And so the all things here, God's reconciling all things. If we can get the next picture up. He's reconciling not just God's people, but the world. The, the, the created world. So what I mean there is that when the fall happened, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and, and God cursed the humans and God cursed the the ground that they were working, the world became broken as well, just like humans were broken. But Christ's death is, is a cosmic event. It's a huge event. It reconciles God's people to God, but it also reconciles the world to God. So meaning that one day we will live in a perfect world that's been reconciled and that's been made perfect. And we wait for that day through the cross He makes that new creation. He redeems the earth. And he redeems us as well. That's how great the victory of the cross was. And in verses like this one and and elsewhere we see that. A cosmic victory that Jesus made. To reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in verse 18, we see that the the heart of all this teaching is saying that Jesus has the supremacy. Jesus is the great one, the greatest one. Uh, If you can get the next picture up there. Uh, When I first got to Griffith, someone told me to go out to Hanwood and to have a calzone. Uh, because the calzones at Hanwood are very good. So um, I went out to Hanwood and I thought, oh, this isn't going to be that good. No, no, look, you know, I'm going to go out there. I'm not going to like it, but I can tell you I loved it. It was a very nice calzone and uh, my, my greatest hopes were realised. <laughs> well, friends, in the same way, 
Maybe get off the calzone if you can. Yeah. Um, in the same way, Jesus isn't going to let us down. He is everything he is cracked up to be. Jesus, in fact, is, is everything Christians we, we say he is. In fact, he's better by far. Can you see the supremacy of the Lord Jesus in this passage? He is the great one that we are to follow. Nine amazing truths. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. All God's fullness dwells in Jesus. And through him God has reconciled to himself all things through the cross. You know, this passage, these verses, are probably an old Christian hymn that Paul ripped off and and put in his own letter. It's worthy of singing about, isn't it? When we come to the great one, the Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and we sing about his greatness. Jesus has the supremacy. Does he have the supremacy in your life? Is he the Lord of you? Because if he is or he isn't, one day the scripture says everyone will bow the knee to him. But is he the Lord of your life now? Jesus is so special because Jesus is supreme over all things. Is he that special to you? I know this is a big part of my own testimony, which I've, I've told you before. Uh, coming to understand the glory of Jesus Christ changed my life. I grew up in a Christian home and I, I tried to believe, I tried to read the Bible, uh, but it wasn't until I heard a fellow, Bryson Smith, preaching on the book of Hebrews and the glory of Jesus uh, that I, the, the penny really dropped, that Jesus was the great one to be followed, that, that Jesus was God himself and that my life was to be all about him. And so I really grew in my Christian faith when I realised that. The point here, friends, is that we are to never move away from the glory of Jesus. We are to get it, and then we are to never depart from it. Do you get it? Do you understand the greatness of Jesus Christ? Does he have the supreme place in your life? Uh, as my story continues, um, I used to drive across Sydney, if you can get the next, next slide, drive across Sydney to, to work. Um, I had to drive 44 kilometres and it took me almost two hours in the traffic, so I could have got to Wagga um, by the time I got to Borellan, if you know what I mean, um, Sydney traffic. And I used to listen to John Piper, the great uh, American Baptist preacher, and the way he describes Jesus... You know, a lot of the times when I got to the car park at work, I was in tears because of how amazing Jesus is. Friends, do you understand how precious he is? Do you understand how glorious he is? Do you know him? The great Jesus. John Piper's catchphrase is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
Another catchphrase he has is to make Christ our treasure. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Colossians is going to go on and nail the greatness of Jesus week after week because Paul didn't want them to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it either. My prayer is that we can say the words of that first hymn together in our hearts where it says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. He's the Lord of all. Is that the place he has in your life?